So we had a baby uh, about a month ago. My mom was out here for about two weeks. Maybe some of you met her. My mother uh, lives in Phoenix, Arizona. So she stayed with us about two weeks. She's headed back home. A couple of years ago, we took a trip to go visit her as a family. Uh, we took a, a couple weeks off in February from here and flew back to Arizona and hung out with mom and relaxed. And of course, when you're in Arizona, at some point, you've got to go to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I grew up in the West, so I'd seen the Grand Canyon before, but um, Susie, my wife, and my children had never seen the Grand Canyon before, and I was excited to share it with them. And uh, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know that it's uh, hours and hours of driving. Uh, You drive across uh, desert and high plains, and most of the area around the Grand Canyon is a high plain. It's fairly dry, and it's covered with little scrub bushes. A lot of them are juniper trees, so picture like a little juniper bush, but like kind of person-sized and then kind of sparsely spread out in a dry, arid terrain with some cattle. And so you're driving along this terrain, and as far as you know, you are in a flat plain that goes on to the ends of the earth. And uh, you approach the Grand Canyon, and you go through the big gate, and you pay your admissions fee, and you drive up to the parking lot. And this whole time, you have yet to see anything that remotely resembles a canyon. And it's hard to believe it's there, because you're in this big flat plain with a bunch of scrub trees. And so you get to the very first parking lot to the overlook area, and you still can't see a thing. And you get out of your car, and you walk down this paved path. And you begin to realize that down ahead of you, maybe 100, 200 yards down the path, there's sort of this end of the horizon where the scrub trees end. You still can't see anything. And as you approach, you suddenly find yourself on the edge of this big hole that came out of nowhere. It's a mile deep and 10 miles across. And it's, um, I got dizzy the first time that I was there because it's so big and out of proportion there's really nothing to compare it to that you're so small and it's so big it's just hard to understand what it is that you're seeing all these colors in this just 10 mile by one mile hole so this is my experience of the Grand Canyon and I am excited to share this with my family and so um, we load two small kids up into the car and we do the multi-hour drive and um, people are hungry and tired and they're squirmy and they need to go to the bathroom and so we get through the gate pay the admissions fee we get to the parking lot at the Grand Canyon I'm ready to have my experience and to share it with my son and we get out of the car and our daughter needs to go to the bathroom and somebody else is hungry and what's most exciting is this is February right and even though we're in Arizona the rim of the Grand Canyon is at about 7,000 feet so there's snow on the ground And my son, Ian, has never seen snow before. And uh, so we get out of the car, and he is on the snow like like an arrow out of a bow. And the rest of us are, we're getting our warm gear on because it's about 32 degrees. And um, we're getting ready for the, the hike out to the rim. And I'm excited to share this moment. Ian's playing with the snow. And so I pick him up to carry him over to the edge. And he is not happy to be taken away from his little patch of snow. And I'm like, hold on, son, you've got to see this. And so we walk through the cold, down the walk, out to the edge, and here is this vista, and it's an amazing moment. And I look at Ian, and I say, Ian, look. And he says, Daddy, put me down. I want to go back to the snow. (laughs) 
So we did have a wonderful time at the Grand Canyon. Ian really enjoyed the snow. He enjoyed the, the food that we ate in the cafeteria there, especially the dessert. And uh, I had a good time sharing the Grand Canyon with Susie. Uh, but there was uh, at no point in which Ian sort of really engaged with what I was excited about, um, this big hole in the ground. This is... Um, the third time that we have taken a look at this passage from John 4 on the woman at the well. Uh, We've taken a look at Jesus and the mission that he is on, that he, it says in verse 4, that he had to pass through Samaria, which um, practically speaking is not exactly true, that he had to pass through Samaria because he was on a mission, because he had to speak to this woman, that he had to cross barriers and to reach out to people with the good news. And we took a look at the woman at the well and her thirst and her need and how Jesus invited her to realize that she was more thirsty than she would admit and to find satisfaction in worship and meeting him. And um, before we move on, I want to spend one more Sunday with this passage because we've looked at Jesus and we've looked at the woman at the well and who have we not looked at yet? We have not looked at the disciples yet. And uh, what I want you to see today is that uh, my little story about the Grand Canyon and Ian being um, so excited about snow that he missed the real show is a parable of your life, of your spiritual journey and mine, that um, based on this passage, you should assume that it is our default setting Um, to miss the real thing, to miss out on the real food, as Jesus would say, to miss out on what is uh, truly satisfying. First thing I want us to see this morning is that um, the disciples, Jesus has his mission, the woman at the well has her need, the disciples have their own mission. Um. It focuses their sight on a few different things. I want to take a look at what their mission is. The first thing is that it's about food. This is a tough one for me because I love to eat. Take a look at um, verse 7. So Jesus is on a mission. He has to go to Samaria because it is a need for him to meet this woman. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And um, so uh, you may not have noticed, I truncated a big section of verses here um, just to shorten this reading. This, the Most of the conversation with the woman is gone. We've talked about that already, but if you fast forward, um, we have this amazing moment. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? When they finally do speak, they say, Rabbi, eat. They've got their own mission. And the first thing to see about it is that it's oriented around food. Which I take to mean um, patterns of comfort. 
One commentator on this passage talked about the disciples as those who live within the world of their own needs. And uh, I thought about preaching that sermon, but I don't know that this passage really goes that far. I don't know that this is a, um, a statement against us having needs and needs being bad. It seems to me just more about comfort, that um, these disciples have found something in Jesus. They're excited about him. These are believers. They're Christians. They're journeying with Jesus. But, um, but we all know that uh, there's, there's just certain practicalities and certain needs. It's need to be comfortable. It's, uh, you know, you get to a certain time of day, and we're going to eat. And there's not a, really a question about that. And so we are going to go ahead, and we're going we're gonna to go off and get our food. Uh, and based on the fact that when they return, and they're urging Jesus to eat, his response is, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I think we're left to assume that Jesus did not send them to go get food. Uh, the disciples remind me a little bit of the hobbits in uh, the Lord of the Rings. You know, they're beginning the journey. What about breakfast? Second breakfast? What about elevensies? I don't think he knows about elevensies. Except at least the hobbits, while wanting elevensies, are going on the journey. The hobbits don't get elevensies. The disciples have not even asked that question. It's as if um, they've been journeying with Jesus and they arrive at the well. And um, who knows, probably James and John, sons of thunder, say, oh, It's eleven. We're going to go into town and get food. And uh, Peter and Andrew, we're in. They're following along. Jesus, you, you, no? Oh, cool. Suit yourself. We'll be back. Do you want a BLT or anything? Okay. It's, the, the, it's unassumed, it's assumed in the disciples' mind. They have not even asked the question whether Jesus wanted food. They just, it, we know. It's 11. We go get 11sies. So their mission is um, oriented around their own comfort. Uh, the second thing to see about the disciples' mission is that um, they do see food. They do not see other people, that they, uh, they go into town and they visit the, the deli or the pizza shop or whatever they have in Sychar and they come back out. And it did not occur to them that anyone in that town might want to know that the maker of heaven and earth was at a well right outside town. Contrast that for a moment with the woman's response, that she has this moment. Um, she says, Messiah will come and explain to us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And immediately she leaves her jar where it is. Remember, un comfort, the whole comfort thing. So she's left her jar behind. And she goes sprinting to the town because she cannot wait to let everyone know what she has found. Whereas the disciples, probably blinded by uh, cultural norms that they were probably not even aware of, did not occur to them at any point that anyone in town would want to know that Jesus was at a well right outside town. That they are, um, the disciples' mission is oriented around comfort and our normal patterns of taking care of ourselves. Their mission is also oriented around our normal social customs. 
And um, if people are invisible in our society, they're invisible to the disciples. That Samaritans, we've talked before, are, uh, they're awkward, they're difficult, they believe heretical things. Um, some of them did bad things to the Jews in the past, and so we're just not going to interact with them. Uh, a typical Jewish person would not even speak to a Samaritan. One rabbi said that you should not let your shadow intersect with the shadow of a Samaritan person. Of course, um, they're willing to be a, a little bit hypocritical when it comes to their need for food, so they're going to go into a Samaritan town and buy food. Um, but anything beyond that, that's, it's just the sort of the, the normal boundaries of comfort um, are, in a sense, invisible to them. They're living within their worldview. The third thing about uh, their mission is that it's oriented around time with Jesus which is not bad. That um, they come to the well, and it's 11 or 12, and they're going to go into town, they're going to get some food, because we all know that we need to eat. That's primary. And uh, we're not going to be troubled with the people of the town, because that's not primary, and we're going to come back, and what's going to happen is when we return to the well, we're going to spread out our blanket, and we're all going to have our lunch, and we're going to have a moment with Jesus, who is just this amazing preacher, and he's going to tell us some really interesting things. They come back, Rabbi, eat. And they're wondering, why are you speaking with her? They're looking for their, their moment with Jesus. That um, Jesus is going to care for them a little bit and probably teach them something useful and comforting. So their mission is not entirely bad. My takeaway from all of this is that the disciples are good, hobbit-like, well-intentioned people who love food and love Jesus and are thoroughly members of their culture and have, they're on a mission, and their mission is fundamentally oriented around what is satisfying in this world, in our kingdom, in the time and place that we live. Um, I want you to know that uh, these things in Jesus' mind, aren't completely rejected, that Jesus often eats with people. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. We talked about earlier, he made 150 gallons of wine for a wedding. The problem is, is not the food. Um, Jesus also got weary of other people. The Gospels tell us there are times often where he would go away by himself to pray and spend time with the Lord. In one of the other Gospels, he takes his disciples on a, on a kind of retreat. They head up to the area of Decapolis, where there are not many Jews, to kind of get away and to have some time with him and the disciples. So what the disciples are desiring in avoiding other people and having Jesus' time and eating food, these are not bad things. They're just not primary things. And for the disciples, they're primary for Jesus, they're secondary because the disciples are on a mission oriented around what is satisfying in this world. And what I want you to see secondly now is that Jesus is on a mission oriented primarily about what is satisfying in his kingdom, in the world where he comes from. Jesus is teaching the disciples when they finally get their moment with him. And he says uh, in verse 35, Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The disciples look out on the world and they see um, some irritating people and they see a need for comfort. Jesus sees 
fields white for harvest. He is looking at the town of Sychar, which is right there. And at this moment, perhaps he may be looking at the hundreds or thousands of people who are at that very moment walking out to meet him. I sort of have this theatrical movie moment in my mind, like the end of Schindler's List, where all the hundreds and thousands of Jews are kind of walking across the field towards the screen. I picture sort of the disciples and Jesus having this conversation at the well. And you look over, and there's this wall of people walking towards Jesus. And Jesus says, Look, I tell you, the fields are white with harvest. When Jesus, with his kingdom glasses, looks at the world, he sees a field white for harvest. It prophesied about this day in the Old Testament in Amos 9.13. Amos is one of the prophets. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's an agricultural image. It's an image of, of harvest. That whatever is going to happen in the future, that the Lord is using the imagery of, of harvesting at harvest time, of having food, of being satisfied to convey it. And he says, the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Well, what does the plowman do? The plowman um, plows over the field and makes a furrow in which you put in the seeds. The plowman does his job in the springtime when it's time to put seeds in the ground at beginning the growing cycle. What does the reaper do? Well, the reaper comes in the fall, and he gathers in all the fruit, the grain, everything that's been produced on the ground. And so if the plowman overtakes the reaper, here's the picture. The harvest came in the fall, and the harvesters, the reapers, they went out in the field to start harvesting. And the harvest was so big that when springtime came, the planting guys come to the field, and the harvesters are still harvesting. And they have this, this moment where the, the planters are like, hey, get, it's, time, it's time to plant. And the harvesters are like, we're still harvesting. But that's the Lord's picture of what's going to happen in the future, that the harvest is, is so abundant, you can't even gather it in before it's time to plant again. And Jesus makes clear what he's speaking of is the growth of his kingdom, of people as a type of fruit coming into the kingdom, being harvested, being gathered, that he looks out at this present age, the age that begins really in this moment, in his day, and this begins what Amos says. Look, now is the time the fields are ripe for their never-ending harvest. He sees the harvest generically. He sees it specifically. So he looks out in the world, and he sees a world ready for harvest. And he looks out in the world, and he sees specific people of which the woman at the well is but one very graphic example. That she is um, a thirsty person, just as Jesus is thirsty, just as anyone who's lived in this awesome, beautiful, broken world experiences thirst and hurt and need and he sees a world of hurting, needy people like this woman. Genesis uh, 1 teaches us that everyone who's ever lived is made in Jesus' image and retains his dignity and glory. And yet Genesis 3 teaches us that we're all fallen and broken. And so um, here's this little tidbit. If you're a Christian and you read your Bible 
you know those two things about every person that you've ever met. doesn't matter if you know their name or know anything about them. You know that they have amazing dignity and worth and that they are broken, hurting people. And if you interact with every person knowing those two things, you will understand people and have a much richer interaction than you would otherwise. The people who look most broken have dignity. The people who look most together have brokenness, as Jesus would say, thirst. But Jesus looks out in the world. He sees fields white for harvest. He sees hurting needy people with great dignity like the woman at the well. And to interact with them, to have a moment of understanding and conversation and communication about himself with people like the woman at the well is so satisfying for Jesus. It's so life-giving. It's like food. As the, Jesus, the disciples come back, they are on our mission, for their mission, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That um, you chat with Jesus. Jesus, how was your day today? How does Jesus evaluate his day? It was long, it was hot, it was tired, but you know what? It was so satisfying. I've known this woman since before she was born, and I got to meet her face to face today, and we talked. We really talked about her loneliness, about the men in her life and how they're not really working and satisfying what she really needs and about her need for worship and about how I can satisfy her. It was such a satisfying day. It was so life-giving. I feel full and satisfied to use the imagery of food and eating from this passage. That that is what is satisfying in the kingdom where Jesus comes from. Um, he's, uh, Jesus is probably alluding to a passage from Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Um, we'll come back to this later, where Jesus, uh, where the Lord teaches Israelites, man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That when you're oriented around the heavenly kingdom, there's something about doing the Lord's will, being on his mission and connecting with people that's satisfying. It's, yeah, you live for bread, sure, but not just for bread. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, verses 37, 38, Jesus says, The saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but at some point in your life, if this hasn't happened already, you will probably get to be there for the experience of someone coming to faith that you will know someone in your life who goes through the journey and comes to the point at last where they would say, this is kind of crazy, but I think this thing is real. I think that Jesus is real. Am I a Christian? And um, in that moment, I recommend that you, uh, at some point, get together with that person and just ask if they would share with them 
their story. What happened over the course of months and days and years to, to what, what brought you to this point where you would say, Jesus is the Christ? And uh, I'm going to go ahead and make the bet now that no one will ever tell you a story that has to do with just one conversation or just one person who just spoke into your life that um, this is what Jesus means. There's reapers and sowers and laborers and everyone who comes to faith is uh, it's a kind of miracle and it's a tapestry of what Jesus is weaving over days and months and years with conversations here and conversations there. And you'll hear a story like, uh, you know, I had this this roommate in college who was a Christian and she was just really strange, but treated me differently than anyone had ever treated me before. And before that, I just thought all Christians were hypocritical, and I still thought they were weird, but it really softened me up. You know, and then a few months later, I had this person at work, and then, but then a couple years after that, I had these neighbors, and just all these pieces that Jesus has arranged, laborers, people living out their faith, coming together over years to form the tapestry of this person coming into faith, which is, um, I think, different than the picture we have uh, sometimes of conversion and evangelicalism. So the disciples are on a mission, which is good, but form just oriented mostly around um, what is satisfying in this world. Jesus is on a mission oriented primarily around what's satisfying in his kingdom. So what happens when these two priorities come into conflict, what is it like to be like me <laughs> and uh, probably to be like you and to be on the kind of mission that's oriented around what we find satisfying and to come into contact with Jesus? And uh, what I think we see in this passage, subtly but present, is um, what one friend of mine calls the if factor, I-F, irritation plus fear. I think the disciples are irritated with Jesus. That they're going to get lunch, and they come back, and um, at first, they're all thinking, um, <laughs> why are you talking with her? But they're Christians, and so y they can't be irritated publicly, so no one's going to say this. They're just all thinking it. Thankfully, John is honest enough to have recorded this for us. They're coming back for their sort of personally fulfilling moment with Jesus. And the first thing to know is that Jesus and his discipleship in your life is going to be more interested in other people than you are. And part of his shepherding and care and love for him is to bring irritating and uncomfortable people into your life. I think the disciples are also um, somewhat perplexed and have perhaps irritated that they have, they have brought an offering to Jesus that he is not interested in. This is convicting for me. How often do we go about and we're like, you know, what would Jesus like? I bet that he would like this, and I'll, I'll have a great plan, and I'll form this great thing, and here it is. Jesus, take my devotion. Take my sacrifice. Take my food. Take my plan. And Jesus says, thanks, but no thanks. I have food about which you do not know. 
So we should expect that Jesus is going to be more interested in other people than we are, and we should expect that Jesus um, may not be interested in everything that we are bringing to him. Um, The same passage I was referencing earlier from Deuteronomy 8 about the bread, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let me back up to the beginning of the verse. It says this, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Look, Jesus is interested in your comfort. He is interested in you having food. He will party with you. But he has a somewhat ambivalent relationship with our needs. And there are other times where he will leave you hungry and lonely and empty or unsatisfied in your desire to sort of build this amazing, big, beautiful church or your amazing progression at work or or whatever it is, that he might let you know that, um, sure, those things are satisfying, but there's something so much more satisfying here. I just, I pictured Jesus in this moment having this, this combination of um, fatherly frustration with the disciples and great love for them. Sort of like, guys, look, food is good, but it, it gets better than this. You're missing what's really satisfying. I want you to meet Jane. The woman at the well, or whatever her name is, because this, this is what we're doing here. This is, this is so satisfying. I want you guys to get a taste of what's happening here. Um, when you're uh, living on a mission that's fundamentally oriented around what's satisfying in this world, uh, your relationship with God will, will become irritating. And your relationship with people will become irritating. Because uh, I think they're irritated at this, at this woman as well. That their thought for Jesus is, why are you talking with her? And the thought about the woman is, what do you seek? She's seeking the everlasting arms of God. But they haven't seen it. They're irritated at her presence, at her interruption. People, um, as one person said, just become a thing, thing. I, I just, it's hard for me to just take in the extreme awkwardness of the moment. If you think of this like a play, I read this earlier, but just take this in for a second. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's beginning to wonder, is this the Christ? And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said anything. So the woman left with her jar, left her jar and went away into the town. The woman is having this moment with Jesus and the disciples come up and it's just, it's like, it's that moment where you're having just a really meaningful conversation with someone and it's just so great and it's deep and then suddenly there they are. The hoverer. And they're there. And you're still talking and they're still there and finally, yes. 
that Jesus is having this moment that the disciples have completely missed because they're focused on what's satisfying to them. That your relationship with Jesus will become irritating, your relationship with other people will become irritating. Uh, so what do we do? What's the takeaway? Well, I think the obvious takeaway from this passage is to let go of your desire for comfort and all of your desires and to give yourself over to serving other people. But I don't think that that's actually what this passage teaches. I don't think that's the application. Like I said, we can tell from other places that Jesus values food and time away. The application is not to become needless servants just poured out for other people. I think, especially reading our context, I think the application is to slow down. The application is pay attention to what God is doing. And pay attention to the people around you and what their needs are. Notice, by the way, I didn't say meet all their needs. I just said pay attention to what God is doing and pay attention to the needs of the people around you. And to be able to do that, you probably need to slow down. Because we are too busy running after lunch and avoiding uncomfortable things and um, doing the things that are need-worthy and necessary in our life, and those things are necessary. But Jesus is saying, you're missing out on the real food. And if you disciples, if you, my beloved Christians, would slow down enough and pay attention to the fact that I have stayed at the well and pay attention to the fact that there is a woman here in need and be aware of the fact that there is a whole town over there in need, that you can find something more deeply satisfying than you have experienced before. Um, especially with Todd being gone on a sabbatical, I've been, I've been like running a marathon. And somehow... Um, even waking up in the middle of the night, our new baby has helped me slow down a little bit. And having a baby in town is challenging for older children. Uh, I knew this in an intellectual sense. I now know this in an experiential sense. So yesterday morning, Ian did what he's done quite a few times. He um, dissolved into a nuclear meltdown because he wanted to press a button, and Addie pressed it first. And rather than what I have been more prone to do, which is say something like, go to your room, or, dude, calm down, stop. You can, you know, just sort of manage his anger. I went to his room with him. And I just snuggled with him for about 15 minutes while he cried about the button that he didn't get to push. And it has taken me about two weeks to slow down enough 
and to hold him in his tears long enough for me to finally recognize that um, his tears about the button are out of proportion because they're not about the button. That he's hurting. And he just needs me to spend some time with him. And um, maybe that's you as well. That if we can slow down enough to pay attention to the uh, emotional presence and the fabric of the people in our lives, there is a chance there to connect them with what you have been connected with and to find something satisfying in that moment. It's not, by the way, the satisfaction that comes from, like, notches in your belt. I've converted eight people. It's always irritating to me when people say junk like that. That's not what it's about. It's about the satisfaction of knowing the person. It's about the satisfaction of having actually gotten to connect with my son for ten minutes. Slow down and pay attention to the people in your life. And I'm going to go ahead and um, look. Most of us in this room did not grow up on this island. And I'm going to conjecture that especially for you who don't live on base, it might be that the most invisible people in your life are your neighbors. Because if you didn't grow up on this island and you're not living on a military base, you probably have neighbors who did grow up here. And you might not even notice this. I usually don't notice this. But it is most easy for us to hang out with who? Other people who didn't grow up on the island. And we can live our lives that way without even realizing that that's what we're doing. And we don't notice, but the people who did grow up here do notice. And it has taken me a few years to figure this out. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know their dreams? Their hurts? Their longings? Do you just know the stuff that they like? Do not, by the way, knock on their door and say, hey, um, what's the greatest hurt in your life? Don't do that. But you should have those questions, just like Jesus has those questions, in the back of your mind as you knock on their door and say, hey, we're going to have a, th I don't even know that we've met before, but we're going to have a thing this Saturday with some friends over, and we're going to watch the 49ers play the Seahawks. Would you want to come just hang out with us? We'll have some poke and burgers and whatever. Come on over. And um, they may say no the first three or four times. And for you, it's going to be awkward to ask, but think about it. When was the last time that you were just profoundly weirded out and irritated that somebody invited you to something? Probably not. Isn't it nice to be invited? That's my application, is to um, ask in your life, what are the barriers that are just so normal in my life and our culture that I'm not seeing them that Jesus might want me to cross? And what would it mean for me to just connect over everyday activities with the people that I rub shoulders with every day that maybe I haven't ever gotten to know before? And if, and if I pray for that relationship, what, what might Jesus do? 
And I actually suggest that you go ahead and just pray and ask for the satisfaction. Jesus, if there's something more satisfying to be had here, help me find it. Jesus' vision is that he looks up at the fields and he sees them white for harvest. The Samaritans are coming. The last few verses, starting in verse 39, we read this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is recorded in Scripture. I invite you to consider what it might be like for all of us to arrive in heaven and to look up the annals of heaven, which based on the fact that they kept chronicles in the Old Testament and all that kind of stuff may actually be there. And to flip to the page where it says, many people from the windward side believed in Jesus because of what they heard from Richard Grable and Chris Eberly and Andrea Sprague. So when they came to worship, they stayed, and many more believed because of the word. And they said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Friends, that is Jesus' satisfying mission. Let's pray.